It's me again. <laughs> One man band today. Actually, I'm glad I'm not in a band. Just, just this. Stay focused. In our gospel passage today, uh, Jesus and three of his disciples make their way up a high mountain. We're not told what mountain it is, but uh, scholars uh, believe that it was probably Mount Hermon, which is in the far north of Israel. It's the highest point uh, in Israel, and it often has snow on it. Years ago, I visited Israel, and I wanted to go up on Mount Hermon and kind of be near where the transfiguration uh, may have happened. And uh, so I drove and drove and drove up, and I would pass these little um, ski towns, because you can actually ski on Mount Hermon. And there is even a chairlift, and just so you see proof, there really is, uh, don't leave me hanging, there really is a chairlift. <laughs> there it is. That's Mount Hermon. And I rode that chairlift um, up to, not the very, very peak, I think the peak is actually in Syria, but up to the part in Israel. This is probably where Jesus took his friends on this little mountain excursion. It wasn't, however, to go skiing. When he took them up there, he did so to reveal more of himself, to give them a greater glimpse of his glory, his power, that which normally was veiled to them. But he wanted to show these three uh, more of who he was. Many of you have completed our Discovering St. Andrew's class, uh, which is the class for those who want to learn more about the church and are considering membership. In that class, uh, you heard about the purpose statement for our church. And that statement, the first part of it, goes like this. We exist as a church to connect people to the presence and power of Jesus Christ. And we really mean that. That motivates everything we do. We exist to connect people individually and also corporately to the presence and power of Jesus Christ. That's where life is found. This morning, I want to consider our church's purpose in light of this gospel story and specifically suggest three things that we need to get out of the way so that we can more fully connect with the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. That's where we're headed. Let me pray, and then we will look at our text. Gracious God, thank you uh, that it is even possible to connect with the presence and power of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps that be possible, and for your word who shows us what it looks like. And so now as we consider your word, Lord, would you teach us how to step further into who you are? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you'd like to follow along, we are going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 2. Uh, this story is referred to as the Transfiguration. Uh, the story is also recorded in Matthew 17 and Luke 9. So Peter, James, and John, they go up on the mountain with Jesus, where he is transfigured or transformed before them, uh, meaning that his face, his clothes become radiant with light, so white we're told that no one on earth could bleach it that way. And then as that's happening, uh, Elijah and Moses, two very significant characters from the Old Testament, they appear and they begin speaking with Jesus. Peter is bewildered and afraid. But if you know Peter, that doesn't stop him from speaking. 
And so he makes a suggestion that they create um, three shelters, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. That doesn't happen. Instead, a cloud overshadows them, and God's voice, God the Father, speaks from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Then Elijah and Moses are gone. They no longer see anyone but Jesus, and then they come back down the mountain. That's our story. I want to make three observations and connect them to how we as a church might pursue this purpose of being connected to the presence and power of Jesus. First observation, no free soloing. No free soloing. There are some people who like to climb mountains all by themselves. Perhaps you have seen the National Geographic documentary called Free Solo about a very famous mountain climber named Alex Honnold. Has anybody seen that? It's terrifying. <laughs> uh, he climbs El Capitan, this huge granite face in Yosemite. He climbs it not only all by himself, but he climbs it without ropes. It is uh, beautiful scenery, but very, very scary to watch. That is not Jesus' approach to this trip up the mountain. Notice that he brings a group with him, Peter, James, and John. We often find these three accompanying Jesus in very significant moments. So Jesus had the wider groups of disciples, then he had his 12, but he had this inner circle, this inner three. It seems that he was particularly close to them, wanted to reveal special things to them. Why not a group? Why didn't he just take Peter? Why did, I mean, Peter's kind of the de facto leader. There's something in Jesus that, that's prioritizing revealing to a community of disciples. This doesn't preclude one-on-one -on -one encounters with the Lord. We read about some of those in the Gospels as well. But many of these significant revelatory moments in the Gospels involve a community. It was to a group of shepherds that the angels announced that the Savior had been born in Bethlehem. Jesus' miracles were done in a public setting where many people could see them. At the Last Supper, when Jesus offers some very important final instructions and institutes the Lord's Supper, it was to the Twelve. After his resurrection, we have a couple of private encounters mentioned, but most of his appearances are to two or more disciples. Why is that important? Because we have a tendency, I think, in the Western world to think about the spiritual journey in faith as something we do by ourselves. Faith is something private to us, something we work out in our inner thoughts and feelings. You probably heard somebody say that. Oh, well, yes, my husband or my spouse or whatever, they're very private about their faith. But the Bible doesn't describe the spiritual life as something private, but as something communal. Now, to be sure, it includes one-on-one -on -one encounters. It includes personal and intimate time between you and the Lord, yes, but so much of the Christian life as envisioned in the New Testament is lived out with other believers. Jesus said in Matthew 18, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It does not mean that he's not also with you when you're by yourself, but there's this particular emphasis put on the community on the family of faith. I think some of the richest experiences of connecting to the presence and power of Jesus happen in community. A hundred men decided to take the weekend and go and be on a retreat. 
Why would anyone do that? Because there is a recognition that God shows up in a special way when we gather together and seek His face. You've probably heard some stories about what happens when we gather together in something like a men's retreat or a women's retreat, which is happening at the end of the month, or a men's hike. I get to lead retreats for our young adults through Holy City Fellows. It is one of my favorite things I get to do in this church because you see God show up in a particular way. Sometimes it's dramatic and wonderful. You're praying for somebody and and God's doing a healing. God's pouring out a spirit in some way. Sometimes it's more simple. It's just getting to know someone, developing a friendship over a meal. But when we're together, we see God show up in powerful ways. But we don't have to wait for a retreat. As wonderful as those are, we have all kind of weekly opportunities to come together. What we're doing right now, Sunday worship, coming together in a life group, coming together on a Wednesday evening, coming together in other ways. So a question for you. Who are your traveling companions? Who's alongside of you as you make your way up the mountain of faith? And I don't simply mean the people you do brunch with or your golfing buddies. I hope you have those too. But I mean the women or men with whom you desire to encounter more of the presence and power of Jesus. And if you don't have those kind of people, you may ask God to lead you to that kind of person, that kind of group. In my experience, that's a prayer that he loves to answer. That's the first observation. No free soloing. A second observation. No containers. No containers for Jesus. Uh, When there are leftovers after dinner, I conduct the big search which means I go into our Tupperware cabinet and I begin to root around until I can find, first of all, just a container that actually has a lid that matches. And then if I'm lucky, that container is actually large enough to contain whatever the leftovers are. Well, that's what Peter is doing with Jesus. He's overwhelmed. He's terrified. He doesn't know what, there's so much of Jesus being poured out. He doesn't know what to do with all. And so he does this, spiritual Tupperware thing. He, he, he reaches for something he knows. He reaches for a container into which he can place uh, this extraordinary experience with Jesus. Peter suggests that they build three shelters. Have you ever found that to be an odd, like, why does that come to his mind? I want to build three tents. Let's have a camp out here. Well, literally, the word there is he wants to build three little tabernacles, Okay. That should be cluing something in your mind from the Old Testament. Because way back in the Old Testament, in Exodus, after God has met Moses on a mountain, and by the way, there's a lot of connections between the story of Moses on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and this story of the transfiguration. After God met Moses on Mount Sinai, he comes down and he gives them these instructions for building what? The tabernacle. The tabernacle was like a movable temple, a movable worship space. And it was going to be, for their time journeying in the desert, it was going to be where God met his people on earth. So Peter has this religious category, and he's trying to pull it down and apply that to Jesus. He says, let's make these little worship structures for each of these spiritual giants, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. So it's an understandable suggestion. It's just not the right one. 
Peter's religious category cannot contain Jesus. Again, it's not that the category is wrong. Tabernacle had a purpose. It had a place in the Old Testament. It just doesn't fit anymore. To use one of Jesus' parables, Peter's tabernacle idea is an old wineskin. Jesus is new wine. The old structures, the old categories cannot contain him. They'll break. They'll burst. So as a church, we want to be connected to the presence and power of Jesus. But we need to understand that he is infinitely greater than any container that we possess. Who he is, what he wants to do in us, will not neatly fit into any preconceived notion that we have. But that doesn't stop us from trying. We all have our spiritual Tupperware cabinet. And we root around in it. We don't even consciously do this, but we'll root around in it and we'll think, I kind of want to fit, or I think God kind of fits in this box or this container in my life. Or maybe it'll be more of a time thing. This is is really all the space I have for God right now. As long as he fits in this, I'm okay with God. Or in the past, God did this, and it it sort of took this shape. And so I'm sure that's how God will move in the future if that's what he did in the past. Or I cannot imagine that God would do anything more in my life than maybe it's a really small container, which is really sad to think that we've limited what God can do. Peter and James and John would later learn something important about tabernacles. It was actually John who wrote it down. John has his own gospel, Gospel of John, First chapter, this is what he writes. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, what he writes is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's connected to the same little word that Peter used to talk about those shelters on the mountain. So what did John and the others learn? They didn't need a container for Jesus because Jesus himself was the container. He was the new tabernacle of God. He was the meeting place of heaven and earth. Jesus himself, in his person, was the place where God's glory fully dwells. Which means that Jesus, and only Jesus, can properly contain or express who God is. The life of faith is not about trying to squish Jesus into our containers, but allowing him to show us more and more of who he is and what he wants to do. So here's a little litmus test, just something you can try. In the last week or two, have you found yourself thinking or saying anything like this? I don't think God can do that. And sometimes we don't put in those words. It's just sort of that thought behind our worry or our fear or our concern or our drivenness or whatever that is. You sort of have this thought of, think God can do that or God would do that. The journey of faith is putting aside those containers and letting Jesus show us who he is and what he wants to do, to let him surprise us, to let him show up in ways in your life that you could have only dreamed about. He is not the Jesus of the Tupperware cabinet. So first, no free soloing. Second, no containers. Third observation, no rivals for Jesus. No rivals. 
after Peter's ill-informed suggestion about the tents, something extraordinary happens. A cloud envelops them, and they hear the voice of God the Father speaking, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. This is the second time in Mark that we've heard God speaking these words over Jesus. The first time, anybody remember them when that was? It's baptism, yes. Chapter 1. On that occasion, when God speaks from heaven, I think it was primarily for the benefit of Jesus. Because the baptism, although it was public and we have the record of it, I think it was very much about affirming Jesus' calling and vocation and identity. But on this time, on the mountain, I think it is primarily for the benefit of the disciples and through them for us. God is revealing to them how important Jesus is. He is the beloved Son. And that word has a particular force to it, beloved. One scholar notes that it pertains to one who is the only one of his or her class, but at the same time is particularly loved and cherished. The only one of his or her class, but at the same time particularly loved and cherished. God is calling out the absolute uniqueness of Jesus. There is no one else like him. We discovered in the last point that he alone is the meeting place of heaven and earth. Now we discover that he alone is the authorized mouthpiece of God. What Jesus says, God says. That's why God's instructions are what? Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus is God's son, his representative. Which means if Jesus says something, it's true. It's from God. It carries the full weight of God's authority. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, or do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but in heaven. Those are not just suggestions. Those are commands from Almighty God. And to ignore Jesus is to ignore God. But it's not just commands, it's also promises. When Jesus says in the parable of the prodigal son that God is like a father waiting for his children to come home and his heart is is brimming with longing and compassion such that when he sees them a long way off, he runs out to them and embraces them and welcomes them back fully into his heart and into his home, despite their excuses and their I'm so sorry and I did this, he's putting his arms around them, putting the, the, the cloak around them and killing the fatted calf. That's the story Jesus tells about what God is like. That's not just a, oh, what a nice trite story. That's Jesus telling us this is who God is. Some of us, for various reasons, past experiences in church, family of origin, we have bad pictures of God. And we might be able to tell ourselves a couple of times, I, I, kinda, I know God loves me, but, but something has to happen deeper down in our hearts so that we can really know and believe who God truly is for us. Well, how do we get there? The power of Jesus' words. We take him at his word. And we take the Father at his word when he says, listen to him. He's telling you the truth about me. After those words are spoken from heaven, Peter, James, and John look around 
and they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. I love those words. If you like to write in your Bible, circle them, underline them, highlight them, but Jesus only. Take them and put those into your heart, but Jesus only. Because for you to be connected to the presence and the power of Jesus, you have to recognize his glorious uniqueness. There is no one else like him. It is appropriate that Elijah and Moses have exited stage left. Spiritual giants, though they were, they are not the beloved son. They are not the tabernacle of God. Their words are not synonymous with God's words. Jesus alone is worthy of that honor. He has no rivals. Why is that important that we emphasize that? Because we live in a religiously pluralistic world in which it is very common that we believe something like this, and this may represent something that you believe. I'll give you a few selections. All religions lead to God. Or all religions believe basically the same thing. Or it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as it works for you. It makes you happy. I think those sentiments are well-meaning. I understand why people make them. We, we want to get along. We want to be respectful for people that aren't like us, that don't see things the way we see them. But well-intentioned though they are, they are massively problematic in two ways. First, those statements do not correspond to reality. The major religions of the world have very different understandings of God, human beings, salvation, and the afterlife. They do not teach basically the same thing. They may, on occasion, have some shared moral principles or ideas, but a world religions class or book will show you that they are very, very different. Furthermore, the major religions of the world claim that it does matter what you believe. They each make a claim in some way or another that they are the right way to view God, oneself, and the world. So it's not just Christians who think like that. Serious adherence to other world religions also believe that their way is the right way, their version of the truth is the version of the truth that counts. So that's the first problem. It's just bad thinking. The second problem for the Christian is that those well-intentioned pluralistic ideas, they disrupt the way in which you connect to the presence and power of Jesus. And you might not put those two things together in your mind. You might think, well, I want to believe those things because those feel like they're kind, right, in the, in the world we live in. But I also want to be connected to the presence and power of Jesus for myself. Well, why can't I have both? Well, I'll tell you why. It will affect the way you approach him. Let's say that Jesus says that God loves broken sinners, which he does. But let's say that Muhammad says something else, and Buddha says another thing, and your favorite spiritual podcast says a whole other thing. Who are you going to believe? You can't believe all of them at the same time and still be connected to this presence and power. How can they all be right and legitimate if they're not saying the same thing about God and about you and about sin and about salvation? What happens is that Jesus simply becomes a consumer choice in an ever-growing marketplace of spiritual ideas and practices. And if that is how you treat Jesus, you are missing out on his presence and his power because he is not a consumer choice. He is Lord 
and Savior before whom we are meant to bow in worship and adoration. If I could put it like this, your belief, your your own faith in the absolute uniqueness of Jesus, your faith is like a massive electrical cable which connects you to him, okay? It allows the spiritual current of his presence and power to flow into your life. But if you embrace a lesser view of him, then you are going to short-circuit the flow of that presence and that power. If you see him as just one among many paths, then you are going to disrupt what's happening in your connection to him. It will restrict your spiritual growth and power. It will flatten your worship, and it will weaken your faith. So my prayer for me, for you, for St. Andrews, is verse 8 of Mark chapter 9. That like Peter, James, and John, looking around, we would no longer see anyone else but Jesus only. Now I recognize that for some, maybe for many in this room, that's a stumbling block. Everything I just said, that's a stumbling block. And some, maybe you identify as a Christian, maybe you don't, but for some you think, I just can't go there. Okay, I just can't do that. I just can't say that Christians have the right path and others do not. That is so arrogant. That is so just narrow focused. I understand that objection. It's an important one to explore and to settle in your own heart and mind. Along with the sermon on the website, you'll find a couple of resources listed. If that is a stumbling block for you or just an interesting question, I would direct you uh, towards those resources. So what have we discovered on this mountain excursion? What do we bring with us as we want to connect with the presence and power of Jesus? Well, first, no free soloing. We need our close sisters and brothers in Christ to grow in faith. Second, no containers for Jesus. He wants to show you so much more. He will not fit in your spiritual Tupperware. And third, Jesus has no rivals He alone is the beloved son, and that truth is central to the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving those three disciples this greater glimpse of you, and through them, uh, giving us that glimpse. And we do pray, Lord, that you would show us how this works out for each one of us and for us as a church body uh, in the days and weeks to come. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.